Hey, I'm Chuck. And I'm Josh. And we're the host of Stuff You Should Know, the podcast. That's right. And if you're into understanding cool and unusual and seemingly ordinary and even boring things that are made interesting, you should check us out. Please and thank you. We're on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play Music, anywhere you get podcasts. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. the podcast. I'm Tracy V. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. Today we are picking up where we left off on our previous episode about the Attica prison uprising. When Attica Correctional Facility opened in 1931, it was praised as a model of security and it had been designed specifically to limit the possibility of an uprising within its walls. But 40 years later, a lot of the systems, tools, and procedures that it relied on for security were temperamental and and obsolete, or in some cases, absent. As we discussed in the previous episode, conditions at the prison had long been demoralizing and dehumanizing to the men who were incarcerated there. And on September 9th of 1971, an uprising began that would end four days later with horrific violence and bloodshed. So... While the events in this episode can stand on their own, I mean, they have a defined beginning, middle, and end. Our prior installment does contain a lot of context, so we do recommend listening to it uh, to it first. Uh, and again, this whole thing ends with just s- some extreme violence. So be forewarned if 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 you're listening with your kids. The incident that ultimately sparked the Attica prison uprising happened on September 8, 1971, less than three weeks after the prison's protest of the death of George Jackson at San Quentin Prison. Leroy Dewar, who is on his first day back in the cell block A exercise yard after being keep-locked for a week, was play-fighting with another man. An officer on one of the catwalks above the yard yelled at him to stop, but he mistook him for another inmate and he called him the wrong name. Dewar, not realizing he was the one being yelled at, kept on with his horseplay, and Lieutenant Richard Maroney came in to break it up. Dewar insisted that he had not done anything wrong, and he said he was not going to be keep-locked again for nothing. When Maroney tried to grab him, Dewar hit him, not hard, but hit him in the chest. Maroney was astonished that Dewar had struck him, even lightly, and so were the other men in the yard. And a crowd started to gather, mostly taking Dewar's side and telling the officers to leave him alone. One of the particularly vocal people in the crowd may have been Ray Lamori, who had been playing football nearby at the time. Eyewitnesses completely contradict one another about whether Lamori was involved, though. Soon, Lieutenant Robert Curtis walked by, saw the situation in the crowd that had gathered, and started to intervene. He moved in to try to get Dewar to go inside, and Dewar continued to refuse. Tempers on all sides flared up until Lieutenant Curtis suggested that Lieutenant Maroney just drop it, and they would sort it out later. The method of sorting it out later was to remove both Dewar and Lamori from their cells after lockup that night and take them to the prison's solitary confinement wing, known as Housing Block Z or HBZ. The widespread belief among Attica's incarcerated men was that anybody taken to HBZ, especially after lockup, was in for a severe beating. 
And this perception was heightened in this case by the fact that Dewar, who was taken to HBZ first, was physically carried from his cell and he protested loudly the whole way, which most of the men in the cell block could hear but not see. When officers returned for Ray Lamori, he went willingly. But from their cells, men threw whatever they had at hand at the officers escorting him as they passed through the block. In particular, William Ortiz threw a full soup can, which struck an officer and caused him to need stitches. Although Ortiz was not taken to HBZ, the order came down that he was to be keep-locked the next day. By morning, everyone was on edge, with rumors flying around cell block A assuming the worst about the fate of Dewar and Lamori. Some of the officers who came on duty that morning had also been called at home ahead of their shift and told to expect trouble. And trouble arrived, and it arrived quickly. When Company 5, William Ortiz's cell block company, went to breakfast, he was supposed to stay in his cell. However, someone took advantage of an unattended lockbox to throw the lever for Ortiz's cell, freeing him in defiance of his keep lock order. Of course, officers quickly spotted Ortiz at breakfast where he was not supposed to be and realized that someone in Company 5 had freed him. They started scrambling to figure out how to keep Company 5 contained without alerting them to what was going on with the hope that they would be able to identify the culprit. Ultimately, the decision was made to take Company 5 to the exercise yard after breakfast as normal, but to lock the gate at one end of that tunnel, the end that connected the cells to the yard, so that basically the man would get to the end and then be stuck there. However, this plan was not communicated very well. Attica just did not have a good way of relaying information from one officer to another. And at about 8.45 in the morning, Company 5's escort, Officer Gordon Kelsey, was completely surprised to find the gate locked. Then, Lieutenant Curtis, who had been part of the altercation the previous day, came into the tunnel to talk to the men who were now contained there. By this point, many in Company 5 believed that it was Curtis who had decided to send Lamori and Dewar to HBZ, and they started to think that they had been trapped in this tunnel on purpose so that the officers could take retribution for Ortiz having hit an officer with a soup can or maybe for some of the, you know, the, the uproar the day before. So men from Company 5 jumped Officer Kelsey and Lieutenant Curtis. This quickly devolved into a complete melee that rapidly spread through cell block A. In the initial riot, Officer Carl Murray was relieved of his keys and baton, while cell block A's inmates destroyed furniture and equipment and ripped out telephone lines. As we mentioned in part one, Attica had been specifically designed to reduce the threat of uprisings within the prison, and to that end, all of the tunnels that connected various parts of the prison converged into one point known as Times Square. Each tunnel had its own gate to the square, which could be locked or unlocked depending on how the traffic needed to flow through it, or all the gates could be locked to keep the cell blocks isolated from one another. By closing and locking all the gates, in theory, officers could contain an uprising to just one portion of the prison. However, on September 9th, a group of about 20 prisoners from cell block A tried to break down the gate to Times Square, and they succeeded. The likely failure point was a weld that probably dated all the way back to the prison's original construction. 
Once they had access to Times Square, the men from cell block A, who had scavenged makeshift weapons and football gear and blowtorches from elsewhere in the block, stormed Times Square and attacked the three officers who were stationed there, taking their keys and knocking at least two of them unconscious. Then they started opening the gates to the other blocks, and from there opening all the cells in the other blocks. While some of the men that they freed joined the riot, others did not and basically stayed out of it. Officers who tried to intervene in this initial chaos were quickly overwhelmed by sheer numbers, and many were injured. Inmates forced several officers to remove their clothing and march naked through the prison before being locked in a cell. Attica really had no formal plan for an event like this. The one thing that was supposed to prevent a wide-scale riot from spreading all through the prison had failed to do that exact thing. The prison was also seriously hampered by being incredibly short-staffed thanks to budget cuts and having a truly archaic system of communication among the cell blocks. The blocks were connected by a single-line telephone, meaning that when officers first tried to call the administration offices to report what was happening, the line was busy. It was a dangerous chaos, and the prison staff was really at a loss at first to stop it. And we're going to talk about how the officers at Attica tried to regain control uh, of this situation. But first, we are going to take a little break and hear from one of our fantastic sponsors. Okay, so I scared you last time around talking about how the holidays are coming. It's frightening, but we're going to be okay. (laughs) We'll get through it. Uh, But if you want to skip all of that traffic and parking at the post office and dealing with Groucholopithecus people that are probably frustrated and short on time and maybe at their wits end, just use stamps.com instead. You won't have to mess with any of that. You can avoid all of the hassle of going to the post office during the holiday season with Stamps.com. Everything you would do during that post office trip, you can do in the comfort of your home or office right there at your desk. That includes buying and printing official U.S. postage just using your own computer and printer. And you can print postage for any letter or parcel right when you need it and then hand it off to your mail carrier. And then you can wish them a happy holidays because you're not stressed from running to the post office. (laughs) Right now, you can sign up for Stamps.com. And use our promo code, which is STUFF, to get a special offer, which is a four-week trial, plus a $110 bonus offer that's going to get you a digital scale and some postage to get started with. So do not wait. Go to Stamps.com. Before you do anything else, click on that microphone at the top of the homepage and type in STUFF. That's Stamps.com and enter STUFF. Because of Attica's archaic communication system, Sergeant Jack English had to call the block captains of each individual cell block by phone to try to give them instructions and figure out what happened in cell block A. Some of his calls were thwarted by busy signals. And to make things worse, some of his first successful calls were to ask other cell blocks to send officers to cell block A to help. But the riot quickly spread out of A Block and into the rest of the prison, leaving those areas without anyone there to try to regain control. So for about half an hour, the riot spread essentially unchecked. At about 9.15 in the morning, the prison sounded its only alarm, which was the steam whistle from the powerhouse. The whistle alerted officers living nearby that they needed to report for duty because something was going on. And it also alerted everyone in the prison, inmates and officers alike, that something was going on. Officers and incarcerated men in parts of the prison who weren't yet touched by this chaos started to operate under the assumption, incorrectly, that someone was trying to escape when really what was going on was way more dangerous. 
For about the first two hours, as people in various parts of the prison labored under that misinformation, the incident at Attica was brutal and destructive. Moving through all four main cell blocks, rioting men opened cell doors and armed themselves with kitchen utensils, hot grease, tools, and handmade knives that were hidden around the workshops. They set fires and triggered the sprinkler systems. They assaulted the custodial staff and destroyed furniture and equipment. Vandalism was widespread, as was looting of the kitchens, the officer's mess, medicine chests, and the commissary. Multiple officers and civilian employees were assaulted, and at least two incarcerated men were raped. Yeah, this whole thing definitely involves into something that has a much more noble purpose, but the first couple of hours definitely fit the criteria of calling it a riot. In that brief period, rioting prisoners took more than 40 hostages, including both civilians and officers, and that number would eventually rise to 50, although 11 would be released over the course of the day, many of those being who were released being very seriously injured. 32 prison employees and many more inmates were also injured in this first two-hour wave of violence. Not everyone released from his cell participated in the violence and destruction, though. Several of the prison's Muslim population rescued officers Curtis and Murray from their attackers in cell block A, and they continued to try to seek peaceful solutions and prevent bloodshed for the duration of the uprising. Barry Schwartz, who was also incarcerated in cell block A, hid Lieutenant Curtis and officers Elmer Hewen and Raymond Bogart, all of whom had been injured in the initial melee in a cell, cleaned up a trail of blood so they would be less easily spotted, and then tried to keep them updated about what was happening elsewhere in the prison. Ernest Hobbs, who was 72 years old and serving a 15-year sentence for grand larceny, first tried to protect a civilian employee from the mob and then devoted himself to guarding the prison's oil and gas in the garage. Rioters were only able to get away with about five uh, gallons of fuel, which were uh, in a a a container that was uh, easy to grab. Throughout those first two hours of chaos, there were also multiple other individual inmates who found and sheltered injured officers in their cells, sometimes dressing them in prison uniforms to camouflage them. Of course, acts of heroism were not limited to the incarcerated men. Civilian employee Mark Eckhart, for example, wound up sheltering 55 inmates and nine civilians in a maintenance shed overnight. After the initial wave of violence started to subside, two efforts simultaneously got underway. Attica's incarcerated men started to organize themselves, moving inmates and hostages into the exercise yard of cell block D. And law enforcement officials started planning to try to retake the prison. On the law enforcement front, off-duty officers reported to Attica. They were issued weapons from the prison's arsenal in the administration building, but they soon ran out of firearms and ammunition and began recommending that people reporting for duty bring their personal firearms from home. However, it became clear really quickly that after the fall of Times Square, the regular custodial staff was not going to be enough to restore order at the prison, not even if every single officer off duty came in. New York State Police were contacted to send in reinforcements. Major John Monahan brought in 200 from his own troop and then summoned 350 more from elsewhere in the state. 
A lack of communication, which had been such a limiting factor in the custodial staff's original response to the riot, continued to hamper the state police's effort to take the prison. There was no overall strategy and there was no centralized command. As the prison's population was moving itself into D-block, the state police were slowly and carefully moving through the rest of the prison, one section at a time, evacuating anyone they found and trying to re-secure the facility piece by piece. As they cleared out and regained control of individual blocks, they relocated hundreds of incarcerated men that they found in those cells. Although some shots were fired during this initial process, no one was injured. Meanwhile, about half of Attica's incarcerated population relocated itself into D-Block, with 1,281 incarcerated men crowded into the yard, with about 50 hostages being held in the corner. The hostages were guarded, once again, by many of Attica's Muslim population, who also found blankets for naked officers to cover themselves and basically formed a human wall to protect them. Gradually, the tone in D-Yard shifted from a riot to a disorderly party to a protest, one that developed a clear set of goals and demands. Organization efforts started when Roger Champin, who was known as Champ, took an officer's bullhorn and began trying to bring the group to order. Champin had been serving time for robbery, and he had become what was known as an inmate lawyer. He had no formal law training, but he had become adept enough at law to inform and assist other people incarcerated at Attica. Champin had not participated in the initial destruction, but he had come to D-Yard after rioters were already gathering people there. During this initial period of organization, they moved the hostages to the center of the yard where their guard resumed their watch and reformed their human chain around them. Once that was done, incarcerated men, especially the ones who were the most popular and looked up to within the prison, started passing around the bullhorn, taking turns addressing one another about reforms that were needed in the justice system, rules that they should set and follow for the duration of this uprising, how they could work together to bring about change, that sort of thing. Speakers also stressed that this was not a race riot, which was something that the white men had really feared was happening, that they were all on the same side here. They also organized security patrols, a force that they intentionally integrated after realizing that almost all of the men who volunteered at first were black. Long before this uprising, multiple organizations with a range of social and political goals had had a presence within Attica's incarcerated population. And although the prison's leadership had feared that they might form some kind of coalition, many of these groups had never really seen eye to eye. But that changed during the uprising. Members of several organizations, including the Black Panthers, the Puerto Rican nationalist group the Young Lords, and multiple Muslim organizations, including the Nation of Islam and the Five Percenters, temporarily put aside their differences to try to organize and negotiate in cell block D. As all of this was going on, the state police was slowly and gradually moving through the prison's other cell blocks, eventually retaking all of cell blocks A and C. Eventually, law enforcement had retaken all of the prison except for cell blocks B and D and the the tunnels and the catwalks that connected them and Times Square. Once officials had retaken A and C blocks, they also had a vantage point on catwalks where they could see what was happening in the other blocks. From early afternoon on Thursday, September 9th through Sunday, September 12th, this was the basic breakdown with prison authorities having control of most of the prison uh, but the, the uprising having control of B and D blocks and those, those connecting other areas. 
With the incarcerated men concentrated in cell block D and the state police holding most of the rest of the prison, the uprising took an unexpected turn. Rather than moving to retake the rest of the prison, Commissioner of the Department of Correctional Services, Russell G. Oswald, decided to negotiate with the men who were occupying cell block D. And we're going to talk about what happened, but first we will take a break and hear from one of our sponsors. It can take a lot of time to build a great wardrobe, and that time is something so many people, definitely including Holly and me, are really short on. But fall weather demands beautiful, well-made clothes. And if you're stressing about finding the time to shop for all those essentials, just relax. Trunk Club can help. Trunk Club makes it really easy for you to lock in your best clothes that fit you perfectly and look amazing. They are handpicked for you by your own personal stylist. Go to trunkclub.com slash history, type in your measurements, share your likes and dislikes, and Trunk Club will send a trunk of clothing straight to your door handpicked by your very own personal stylist. Trunk Club is backed by Nordstrom, so stylists have access to some of the best designer brands. You can try on your stylist selections, keep what you like, send back what you don't, and your stylist takes the time to understand your unique look. They'll help build a perfect fall wardrobe with timeless classics, well-made layers, and other seasonal essentials. Uh, If you live in Dallas, New York, Los Angeles, Chicago, D.C., or Charleston, you can stop by one of the Trunk Club clubhouses to work with your stylist in person for free. Trunk Club is not a subscription service. You order clothes whenever you like from your own personal stylist and then take five days to try everything on. Returns are always free. Get started today at trunkclub.com slash history. That's trunkclub.com slash history. One more time, trunkclub.com slash history. Of course, not every person in D-Yard during this uprising was actively participating in the uprising as it evolved. A lot of them were basically just passing time or waiting, maybe causing some mischief Some were really there under duress. They had been moved by the forces, uh, that were, that were rioting initially, basically felt threatened and, and went along with it. But those who decided to organize developed really ambitious goals. First, they negotiated for medical care, including first aid for the injured and help for people who had chronic medical conditions. Walter C. Swift, who was serving a life sentence for murder, was working in the prison hospital as the head nurse, and he volunteered to deliver prescription medications to D-Yard. He wound up both successfully negotiating with D-Yard for the release of several hostages and providing medical care during this uprising. He became known as the Angel of Attica. Dr. Warren Hansen, who worked at a nearby hospital, provided medical care during the uprising as well. After commandeering a typewriter from the prison school, a group of men in D-Yard started drafting a set of demands. They began, one, we want complete amnesty, meaning freedom for all and from all physical, mental, and legal reprisals. Two, we want now speedy and safe transportation out of confinement to a non-imperialistic country. Three, we demand that federal government intervene so that we will be under direct federal jurisdiction. Four, we demand the reconstruction of Attica prison to be done by inmates and or inmate supervision. This manifesto went on to list a number of people through whom they wanted to negotiate and demanded that all communication happen in, quote, our domain, which was the D-yard. What followed the delivery of this manifesto was a huge multi-day effort to negotiate and to try to bring the uprising to a peaceful end. 
At three in the afternoon that day, Assemblyman Arthur O. Eve and Professor Herman Schwartz, both of whom had been advocates for prison reform, were allowed into the prison. They were involved in much of the rest of the negotiations, and along with prison officials, media, and observers who were selected by the inmates to try to negotiate a settlement, they made repeated trips into the D-yard over the next three days. By Thursday evening, the overall mood was optimistic. Commissioner Oswald had come to the yard himself and had spoken to the men directly. Professor Schwartz had left to get a court order to prevent reprisals against the incarcerated men. And Assemblyman Eve had left to gather the more than 30 observers the incarcerated men had requested to help negotiate on their behalf. For their own parts, the inmates had crafted a set of 15 practical proposals patterned after a set of demands that were written during a protest at Folsom Prison in 1970. These proposals included things like apply the New York State minimum wage law to all state institutions, stop slave labor, and give us free religious freedom, and allow all inmates at their own expense to communicate with anyone they please, Many of these, Oswald openly said that he agreed with, at least in spirit. But by Friday morning, negotiations started to get rocky. The prisoners didn't believe the injunction Schwartz came back with was valid because it had no seal and because it referenced, quote, the disturbance on September 9th, 1971. And now it was the 10th. Initial feelings of optimism started to fade as Attica's incarcerated men started to lose their trust in the negotiations. Back and forth, essentially uninterrupted negotiations continued all day Friday and into early morning hours on Saturday, September 10th. By that point, the strain was clearly starting to show. In addition to the core demand of complete amnesty for everyone who had participated in the uprising, which was just a huge sticking point The 30-some observers who had been summoned were really all over the spectrum in terms of their social and political points of view. They ranged from more moderate social reformers who might advocate for, you know, incremental reforms that were a little less, uh, less radical to people who truly were parts of very radical black and Puerto Rican nationalist organizations. Eventually, they decided that 30-something observers were way too many to effectively negotiate, so they narrowed their numbers down to a much smaller group. By Saturday evening, after lengthy negotiations, the observers and Commissioner Oswald each had versions of a set of proposals for reforms at Attica, which addressed many of the conditions that we outlined in Part 1. And the two documents had quite a bit of overlap. For example, both contained, quote, provide adequate food, water, and shelter, with the observer's proposal ending, quote, for this group, and the commissioner's, quote, for all inmates. The observers read, quote, apply the New York State minimum wage law, and the commissioners read, quote, recommend the application of the New York State minimum wage law. So while there were lots, really lots of points of of overlap, the two sets of proposals also had some places that were a total disconnect. The observers proposed, quote, place this institution under federal jurisdiction. But the corresponding point in the commissioner's proposal is, quote, established by October 1st, 1971, a permanent ombudsman service for the facility staffed by appropriate persons from the neighboring communities. The observers' proposals had 38 points to the commissioners' 33. So some of the things that uh, that the observers were proposing, the commissioner wasn't really uh, noting at all. The biggest stumbling block continued to be, unsurprisingly, the idea of amnesty. 
the men in D-Block still insisted on total amnesty for their participation in the uprising. And some even went so far as wanting to be granted asylum outside the United States. And that was more than officials could really grant. It is possible that with continued negotiations, Oswald and the observers could have gotten to a settlement that the men in D-Yard would have accepted, especially if they could have been convinced to accept a more narrow definition of amnesty rather than like a, a total amnesty. Like there were a lot of things in place to try to prevent reprisals, but I mean, the state obviously was very reluctant to say, yeah, we're just going to disregard that this whole thing even happened. But on September 11th, 1971, Officer William Quinn, who had been struck in the head during the initial takeover of Times Square, died of his injuries. Rumors ran through the D-Block Assembly about exactly what had happened, and these were fueled by inaccurate media coverage saying he had been thrown from a window. But in general, everyone involved recognized that someone would be charged with murder in Officer Quinn's death. This amnesty point that had been so, so central to the, the demands from the very beginning was now completely off the table. And with that, negotiations started to fall completely apart. By Sunday morning, September 12th, those negotiating with D-Block took desperate steps in the hope of preventing an invasion and massacre they were certain was on the horizon. Calling his unlisted home number, which they got from a state senator... The observers tried to convince New York Governor Nelson Rockefeller to come to Attica to talk directly to the prisoners, which he declined to do. Attica Superintendent Vincent Mancusi offered to resign in the hope that it would encourage the men to accept the agreement, but Oswald declined to accept his resignation. On the morning of September 13th, Commissioner Oswald sent a final pleading request to D-Yard to accept his proposal and to bring things to a peaceful end. After some debate, the men in D-Yard rejected it. Soon after, inmates took eight hostages up to the catwalks around the yard and held knives to their throats in a visible show of defiance. Shortly thereafter, state police moved into Attica in an operation planned by state police major John Monahan. His job, however, was only to plan the assault, not to plan for communication with the media or families, medical care, emergency response, or a return to normalcy for the prison. And consequently, there was no plan for any of those things. There were procedures in place to protect the state police who participated in this assault from harm. For example, they were barred from participating in hand-to-hand combat, knowing that the men in cell Black D had armed themselves with makeshift knives. Additionally, they anticipated that visibility was going to be really poor and the whole situation chaotic. But there were no policies in place, really, to reduce the threat of unnecessary injury or death among the inmates or the hostages. Also, Attica's correctional officers, who had clear emotional ties to what was going on, were allowed to participate in this assault once uh, once the negotiations had completely broken down. When the assault began at 9.46 a.m. on Monday, September 13th, power was cut to the prison. Sharpshooters made their way to rooftops to provide covering fire. Units moved through the prison and began to cut their way through barricades that blocked their way into D-Yard. Gas grenades were dropped by helicopter and a warning played by loudspeaker. Do not harm the hostages. Surrender peacefully. You will not be harmed. 
Put your hands on top of your head and move to the outside of B and D corridors. Sit or lie down. Once everything was in place, from their positions along catwalks above D yard, New York State Police opened fire. Over the span of about 15 minutes, 38 people were shot to death and 80 more were wounded. One more would die of his injuries about a month later. Overall, 10% of the people in the yard were hit by the state police's gunfire. A quarter of the hostages died. In the immediate aftermath, officials announced that the hostages who had died had all had their throats cut by inmates before the state police assault on the prison. This was false. Although two survivors did have serious knife wounds to the neck, both said that they had been slashed after the state police opened fire, not before. Because there had been no plan in place for providing medical aid, including no plan for transferring incarcerated men to hospitals, many of the people who were injured went without medical care for hours. Because there had been no plan in place to identify bodies or to communicate with families uh, of the incarcerated men or the hostages, the last families to be notified that their loved ones had died happened on the following Thursday. A National Guard unit that was meant to set up a field hospital did not even arrive on the scene until after the initial assault was over and then was described in media reports as having been part of the assault, which was absolutely not true. After the initial assault on the prison, state police and correctional officers began trying to relocate inmates from D-Yard to still-functioning cells in other blocks. During this process, there was extensive retribution against the incarcerated men. Some were made to essentially run a gauntlet of officers who beat them on the way down. Others were taunted, humiliated, and addressed with racist slurs. And while there certainly were officers who exercised restraint, both during the assault and during the efforts to restore the prison to normalcy, many definitely did not. In the words of the official commission report, quote, Officials have subsequently pointed to the 1,250 survivors of D-Yard and said they did not do badly. The commission has considered the 39 dead and scores of wounded and concluded it was not done well. There was also a conversation between the governor and President Richard Nixon in which Richard Nixon was basically like, well, you saved a lot of guards, so that's good. In making their way through the heavily damaged prison, officials found nearly 1,500 weapons, many of them made during the course of the uprising, including Molotov cocktails, wooden and metal bludgeons, and makeshift knives. There were also baseball bats, knives, razors, and tear gas guns scavenged from around the prison. After the assault was over, officials also found the bodies of three inmates who had been stabbed to death during the course of the uprising. One was Barry Schwartz. He was the one who had hidden guards in one of the cells. Some of the reforms that Oswald had been planning before this uprising did follow after it, and a lot of them were compatible with what the inmates had been demanding during their negotiations. As just a few examples, in the months after the uprising, telephone booths were installed at Attica for for the men to use, along with a new commissary that actually sold commercial droppers for heating food, so you could both buy food and buy something to heat it up. 
The library was expanded and censored materials were re-reviewed with 55% of previously rejected materials being approved this time around. At the same time, correctional officers were largely bitter after the uprising, both at the inmates who had participated and at Commissioner Oswald for negotiating with them. In July of 1972, incarcerated men at Attica went on strike to protest the dismissal of a recently hired female nurse, which derailed further plans for reform, with officials instead becoming a lot more focused on the prevention of another uprising. Many of the same resource issues, racial and economic disparities, and other factors that led to that uprising still persist today. The prison strike that started on September 9th, 2016, for example, was in protest of forced labor for minimal pay that is still a standard part of many U.S. prisons. Uh, The New York State Commission uh, on Attica was convened after this to basically research everything that had happened. And they did extensive interviews among basically everyone who was involved. And you can read that entire report online. And initially, I had multiple lengthy quotes from it that really sound like they could be about today with things that are in the news relating to racism and the justice system and mass incarceration. Like, all of these things really sound as though... uh they could be about situations that are happening in in today's world. So even though a lot of the circumstances that were present at Attica in 1971 were improved later, a lot of the core conditions that led to this uprising are still things that exist in the world today. And we will link to that in the show notes so that people can read for free, because as I said, like this is really an overview of it. Uh, and the, the book Blood in the Water that just came out um in August, I think, uh, also incredibly detailed, full of like research gleaned from tons and tons of, of original record requests. Uh, so there is lots of other information available out this about this for folks who are interested. I also don't want to make it sound like there was, uh, you know, a protest at Attica and then all of these conditions got a whole lot better because a lot of the things that uh, they were protesting about do still exist. There's still, you know, a lot of censorship in prisons and pay that is either uh, or work that is either not paid or paid a few cents per day or per hour. A, a lot of the same sorts of conditions that were so dehumanizing to people in 1971 are definitely still around today. Hey, Tracy, do you yeah. also have a little bit of listener mail for us? Maybe not so heavy. Do it's not. It's not so heavy. It is a correction. Uh, this is from Heidi. Heidi was the first person who wrote to us about this. Several other people have written to us about this. And then the thing that I love is that several people have commented on our Facebook posts to say, I came over here to see if you had already corrected this. I love all of you who did that so much. <laughs> uh, because occasionally when, when, when one of us messes something up, up real bad, it starts to feel like, Kind of a pylon, and and so all the folks, I love you all very much. Yeah, thank you for not making a landslide. Because <laughs> <laughs> I messed up. I super concretely messed up. So Heidi says, Dear Tracy and Holly, greetings. I was listening to your most recent episode entitled Six Impossible Episodes, Deja Vu, and was super excited to hear you talking about the history of my hometown, Toledo, Ohio. Thanks for covering this little section of the Midwest. Throughout this section, you discuss the Toledo Strip as the area of land between Indiana and Lake Michigan. However, this was actually Lake Erie. 
easily confusing since Lake Michigan is more often associated with Chicago and Wisconsin than its namesake state. That was tricky to say. And I'm with you on the Ohio State University-University of Michigan football rivalry. Not being a big fan of the sport myself, I only knew football was in season growing up because it was also marching band season. However, you always knew the big game was coming when the Friday before everyone was dressed for their team. The demographic of fans in Toledo is almost 50-50, and the town exploded with blue and yellow or red and white colors. Thanks again, and keep up the good work. Sincerely, Heidi First of all, I get this whole thing about marching band season being what football season was because I was in the marching band and that was how I knew what was up. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I want to preface this by saying I do know how to read a map. <laughs> I have used maps often to get myself out of the situation of being lost. Uh, and in this particular case, I looked at the descriptions of where the borderline so many times and they all referenced Michigan and Lake Michigan that like in my head, Lake Michigan became the problem. That's incorrect. So for those of you who don't necessarily have in the forefronts of your mind a map of the United States, Michigan, the peninsula of Michigan looks kind of like a hand in the little mitten. And over on the pinky side of the mitten, that is Lake Michigan. And then over the thumb side of Lake Michigan, that is Lake Erie. And so if you draw a straight line across your wrist, you're going to eventually cut off access to Lake Erie down there. And I, in my head, I just decided that Michigan was the problem. Like, that was not correct at all. So I feel like I should interject here. Uh-huh. Because you're taking all of the blame for this. Uh-huh. And you may have prepped those notes. Uh-huh. I have relatives in both the UP and LP of Michigan didn't even click for me. No, not a phase, not a moment of, that doesn't seem geographically correct. I drove up there over the summer. Yeah. No. <laughs> so I have to take some of the heat on this because my brain didn't geography one hairy bit. It went, yeah, that seems right. Sure. <laughs> seems good. Seems good. Uh, and so yeah, I apologize for messing that up. Thank you again for the folks who have, who've written in. And I just, I think this is the first time that we have made a, a, like a, that discrete and concrete of an error. That a bunch of the response that we have gotten is people on our on our Facebook page saying, "Hey, I just came to check and see if you had corrected this, and I'm glad that you did, and, and that makes my heart happy." Yay! Because uh, number one, it means people are coming to our Facebook page to talk to us, and then number two, it means like that's a thing that, that folks folks know that when we mess up, we're going to try to fix it. <laughs> uh, so I I apologize for that error. Uh, I'm glad it gave me the opportunity to describe a state as a hand and a mitten, though. It sounds really cute when you describe it. I have to say, <laughs> like, oh, I never thought of it. Does kind of look That's like the a hand sweetest in thing ever. Yeah, there's so many other states that look like somebody making a rude gesture. So it was nice to describe it this way instead. If you would like to write to us about this or any other podcast, we're at History Podcast at HowStuffWorks.com. We're also on Facebook at Facebook.com slash History and on Twitter at History. Our Tumblr is MissedInHistory.tumblr.com. We're also on Pinterest at Pinterest.com slash History. And we have an Instagram, too. That is Missed in History. You can come to our parent company's website, which is HowStuffWorks.com. You will find articles on just about anything you can think of. You can come to our website, which is MissedInHistory.com, where we have show notes for everything Holly and I have ever worked on. Like I said, I'm going to put the uh, special commission report, a link to that, in the show notes for this, because there are just so many things we did not even get into in this overview. So you can do all that and a whole lot more at HowStuffWorks.com or MissedInHistory.com. 
more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 